Hello and welcome to another episode of Life in the Dark, a podcast dedicated to the golden age of radio and Hollywood's classic era. This podcast is part of the Nomad in the Middle network. More information can be found at nomadinthemiddle.com. The Mystery Playhouse, a rebroadcast for the service men and women of the United Nations. Good evening, this is Peter Lauren. The circumstances leading up to horror and tragedy are many times as innocent seeming as a Sunday school picnic, and the perpetrators of evil appear often as ordinary, normal human beings. Yes, but they are capable of conceiving acts of diabolic destruction, as you will hear tonight in the Mystery Playhouse. Listen now to Mr. Boris Karloff in Those Who Walk in Darkness. We look in on a scene taking place in a private room at Bayside Hospital. A man with heavily bandaged eyes lies restlessly in a bed. At his bedside are his wife, Valerie, a nurse, and a famous eye surgeon, Dr. Paul Wade. Dr. Wade looks strangely intently at his patient before he speaks. Dressings at midnight and again in the morning, nurse. Yes, doctor. Well, doctor, what did you find? Will I be blind? Is it very bad? Now, now, take it easy, Mr. Denton. There's nothing to worry about. Nothing at all. You... You're sure? You aren't just saying that. I'm quite sure. Valerie... Valerie, did you hear that? I... I'm not going to be blind. Valerie? Valerie, where are you? Right here, darling. Did you hear? I won't be blind. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, darling, it's marvelous. You... You don't sound very excited. Valerie, don't you realize I'm going to see again? She doesn't sound excited because I don't want you to be excited, Mr. Denton. You've got to relax. Try to sleep. Sleep? With this ungodly pain? My eyes feel as though they were on fire. That will stop as soon as the opiate I gave you takes hold. You'll be comfortable, I'm sure. Now, good night. You're going now, Doctor? Yes, I'll... I'll look in on... on your husband in the morning. Stephen? Yes, Valerie? Do you mind if I step out into the corridor for a moment? But you... you promise not to leave me. I... I'm afraid, Valerie. Everything's so dark, I... The nurse will be here, dear, if you want anything. I just want to ask Dr. Wade some questions. Questions? But he's already told us that... Yes, Stephen, I know. But I'd like to find out about the treatment and how I'm to take care of you when we get you home, you know. Just little things. All right. But... but hurry back, I... I want you near me. I will, dear. Uh, Good night, Mr. Denton. 
Good night, Doctor. And thank you. You're quite welcome. After you, Mrs. Denton. Thank you. I suggest we step into the consultation room across the hall. We'll have more privacy. All right. Here we are. Thank you. Well, it's been a long time, Valerie. Yes, Paul, it has. Almost ten years, isn't it? About that. Strange that you should have called me, of all people, to treat your husband's eyes. Oh, I, I was panicky, Paul. I didn't know what to do. It all happened so suddenly. Stephen was working in his laboratory at the house when suddenly I heard a violent explosion. I ran in and found him clutching his eyes and screaming, I'm blind. First thing I thought of was an ambulance. Then you... Why didn't you think of me ten years ago? That's not fair, Paul. Was it fair to turn your back on me and then to marry a man almost twice your age? Paul, please, why bring up ancient history? It isn't ancient history to me. I've never forgotten you. Paul, about Stephen's eyes. What about them? I have a feeling that you weren't telling him the truth. You're right. Oh, you mean he's not going to regain his sight? He's going to be blind? Oh, Paul. You don't expect me to be to be terribly concerned, do you, Valerie? After all, he did take you away from me. Don't be vindictive, Paul. It wasn't Stephen's fault. He didn't even know of your existence. And you never told him that we were on the point of being married? No, never. <laughs> it's rather ironic that we should meet again at the bedside of my rival. Your husband. A man who may forever walk in darkness. Don't say that, Paul. It's horrible. But unfortunately true. A moment ago, you told me not to be vindictive. I'm not, really. But if I were, I could have my fill of vengeance if I told him about us. And then told him that he'll be blind forever. You wouldn't, Paul. Or I might take another form of revenge. I could tell you that an operation is called for. A very delicate operation. Are you trying to say that there might be a chance? Yes. But supposing I refuse to perform the operation? Paul, you're joking. You can't mean that. Perhaps not. But you call me vindictive. Suppose I operate and my scalpel slips. What if he dies? That would be murder. You're not a murderer, Paul. You wouldn't risk your professional reputation. Why must you torment me this way? You really love him, don't you? Yes, I do. Then forget the things that I've been saying. I want you to think of me as a friend. I want you to trust me. I do trust you, Paul. Thank you. Now as to the possibility of surgery. Here is the situation. The transparent film over your husband's eyes, the corneas, were burned and torn by the explosion. They've been so damaged that blindness will result, even though the eyes heal. But you think an operation would cure that? Possibly, although it's a very delicate job. The injured cornea must be peeled away and replaced by a fresh, healthy one. Where can you get healthy corneas? From the eyes of the dead. Oh. It isn't quite as horrible as it sounds, Valerie. You know, dying peace, people often will their eyes for just this purpose. We maintain what we call a corneal bank. It's much the same as a blood bank, only but there's this difference.
corneal tissue can't be stored more than 48 hours. It must be fresh or it's no good. You have some available in the bank? No, that's the trouble. I'm afraid we haven't. But there's got to be some, Paul. I don't know where, Valerie. Unless... Unless what? I was just thinking. Last night, one of the interns asked me to look at a charity case that puzzled him. He lives in a dirty little shack near the waterfront. Yes, Paul. I stopped by and examined him. I found him in curable condition. There's no way to save him. He won't live more than a day or two. But his eyes are healthy. You mean, you think he might... I don't know. You'd have to have his consent, of course. Take me to him, Paul. I'm sure I can make him understand. Oh, it may not be so easy, Valerie. He's a strange person. A mystic and a spiritualist. Let me try. Just take me to him. All right. We can go there now. surprised where people are forced to live. That's the house over there. That, that gray shack. Does he live alone? No. There's a toothless old woman, I don't know where he picked her up, who keeps house for him. She's rather hideous and I suspect a bit demented. So don't be frightened when you see her. I'll try not to be. Here we are. There's no bell. Foghorns are giving me cold shivers. Yes, they do sound eerie. Here comes the old woman. Yes? We'd like to see Chandra, please. You can't. He's getting ready to go away. Chandra's going on a long journey. Yes, we know. We'd like to see him before he leaves. We are friends of his. Eh? I said we are friends of Chandra. I was here last night. Don't you remember? Come in. His room's at the end of the hall. You know the way. I have to stay here by the stove. I'm cooking something. Yes, something for Chandra's journey. I see. Come, Valerie. <laughs> Paul, she's ghastly. But harmless, I'm sure. Here. This is the room. Dark in there. Yes, but there's a lamp burning. But the wick is down. I'll turn it up. There, that's better. Paul, there on the cot. Is he alive? Yes, still alive. Chandra. Chandra. Who calls Chandra? It's Dr. Way. You remember me? I was here last night. Yes. Chandra remembers, but it is too late. I am going away on a journey. I know. That's why I've come. I brought a young lady with me, Chandra. She has a favor to ask. Chandra has no favors to grant. Soon I will start to the other side. Let her tell you what she wants, Chandra. Now go ahead, Valerie. <laughs> 
Chandra. Well? Chandra, my husband suffered an accident. An explosion. His, his eyes. Oh, Paul, I can't. You tell him, please. All right. Can you hear me, Chandra? I hear you. So this young lady's husband just lost the sight of both his eyes. He'll be completely blind unless I perform an immediate operation. Unless I take parts of two healthy eyes and place them on his. He's asking that you give her your eye. Do you understand? I understand I am visited by those who would rob me. But you're going to die anyway. Die? No, you are wrong. There is no death. I am going on a journey. Please, please help me, Chandra. No, I will need my eyes. I will need them to see into the great beyond, to guide me through eternity. The eyes are the windows of the soul. I'll give you anything you ask. I'll... No, no, I said no. No, I... Oh. Oh, something's happened. He's dead. Then it's all right. You can take his eyes. No, I can't. He refused you. Paul, listen to me. A doctor's first duty is to the living, to heal them, to make them whole. What responsibility have you to this, this lifeless thing? It's a matter of professional ethics, Valerie. Paul, you've got to do it for me. Blindness would drive Stephen out of his mind. He's always hated the dark, like a little boy. Paul, please. It wouldn't be right, Valerie. It's a matter of life and death, not right or wrong. Paul. Paul, you have your surgical kit with you. Yes, but... Paul. Paul, please. I beg you. All right. Close the door. It's good to be home again, Valerie. That hospital room was beginning to get me down. It's going to be even better once the bandages are taken off. Yes. Just another week, that's what Wade said. Oh, he's a good doctor, Valerie. I, I like him. I'm glad. Imagine being able to see again after all these weeks of darkness. I've never liked the dark. <laughs> Why... It will be like coming into a new world. Yes. Tell me, what sort of an operation was it, Valerie? Well, I... I don't know. You don't... You sound like you're trying to hide something. Oh, don't be silly, Stephen. Uh, oh, that must be poor. <laughs> Dr. Wade, no. I, I'd better let him in, Stephen. I think Jenny's in bed. Good evening, uh, Mrs. Denton. Good evening, Doctor. Sorry I'm so late, but I had an emergency call. Oh, it's quite all right. Hello, doctor. Well, how is the patient? Oh, fine, fine, thank you. And anxious to get these bandages off. Patience is a virtue. Yes. 
But blindness is a curse. Don't be so morbid, Stephen. You're very lucky. Yes. I know I am. Uh, it, it's a warm night, isn't it, Doctor? Yes, a lovely night. Stars and a new moon. They say a new moon's a good omen if you look at it over your left shoulder. Did you know I was superstitious, Doctor? Well, I guess we all are in one way or another. Yes. Oh, would it be all right if we took a short walk in the garden while Valerie makes some coffee? That is, if you have the time, Doctor. Yes, plenty of time. Well, can't I come along? Oh, no, this is a stag party. Oh. You, you, you fix some coffee for us like a good girl, and we'll be back shortly. All right. Here, we can go out through the terrace. Here, let me take your arm. Thank you, Doctor. What a gorgeous night. Yes, isn't it? See how the moon is... I... Oh, sorry, old fellow. I forgot for a moment. That's all right. I, I'll be seeing it soon enough, thanks to you. And now you're seeing it for me. Over my left shoulder, I hope. Why, uh, no. It's the right one. That's bad luck. I... Oh... But you couldn't possibly bring me bad luck, Dr. Wade. Not after giving me back my sight. You'll never know what you've done for me. No? No. You can't possibly know how much it was because you're not in love with Valerie. Uh, Valerie's my life, Doctor. So young, so beautiful. Without eyes, how could I see her beauty? I... I'm getting on in years, you know, and uh, there'd be very little left for me if I couldn't look at Valerie and see the warmth of a smile. Oh, I don't expect you to understand that. Nobody can understand it except the one who's in love. Perhaps you're right. It must be very pleasant to see with the eyes of love, even though the eyes are borrowed. Borrowed? What do you mean? Oh, why, nothing. Nothing, really. That's not the truth, Doctor. Shall we keep no, walking? No, no, I want you to explain what you meant when you said my eyes are borrowed. It had something to do with the operation you performed, did it not? Now, look, I won't this. be put off. I told you I was superstitious. Give me back my eyes. <gasps> Who said that? Dr. Wade? Who said what? Give me back my eyes. There, a strange voice. I didn't hear anything. Yes, yes, I heard a voice saying, give me back my eyes. Give me back my eyes. There, there it is again, Doctor. Oh, for the love of heaven, whose voice is it? Tell me. Tell me, I'm blind, I can't see. I think perhaps we'd better go in. Mr. No, Dan. no, no, I tell you, I heard a voice. Oh, but you're tired, now come. But I... Uh... All right. I... I can't understand it, I'm... Swear I heard a strange, no other voice. There was no voice, at least. None that I heard. Here we are. Step up. That's fine. Back so soon? I think you'd better go right to bed, Mr. Denton. You're tired and unnerved. Yes. Yes, I will. Coffee will be ready in just a few minutes. 
Oh, I... I think I'll retire, Valerie. Is something wrong, Stephen? He's tired. Oh. Oh, here, let me help you. No, no, don't bother, please. I can find my own way. You stay with Dr. Wade. Doctor, are you sure we didn't hear? I'm positive. I see. Well, good night. Good night. I'll be in shortly, Stephen. All right. What happened, Paul? I'd rather not discuss it. Please, you must tell me. Well, it's... It's something I've been worried about. What do you mean? I haven't brought this up before because... I was hoping against hope... that the thing I feared was not true. Paul, you don't have to hide anything from me. Is something wrong with Stephen? I'm afraid so. I'm afraid the explosion injured his brain as well as his eyes. It isn't going to be easy to take, Valerie. What happened in the garden? He said he heard a strange voice saying, Give me back my eyes. Oh, I, I shouldn't be telling you this, Valerie. You're trembling. Oh. I'm thinking of that Hindu, Chandra. You said he was a mystic, a spiritualist. Do you think it's possible that... Oh, no, it couldn't be. No, Valerie. I'm afraid Stephen's brain has been affected. And the horrible part of it is that I'm convinced the complete insanity will set in eventually. Stephen! I heard what you said, Doctor. Oh, Stephen. It's all right, dear. Stephen, darling. Come back into the bedroom, Mr. Denton. I want to talk with you. No, Valerie. You stay out here. Or better yet, go and get me some hot water. Hot water? Yes, I, I think I'll change these bandages and uh, I'll want the water boiled. So watch it for at least six minutes. Very well. I'll, I'll go to the kitchen. Now, Mr. Denton, shall we go into your room? It's no use, Doctor. Let me guide you. There. That's fine. I know you're trying to cheer me up, but I tell you it's no use, Dr. Wade. I understand. I'm going mad. I'm sorry you overheard. After all, I, I could be wrong. Although... Although you know it's true. I may as well be frank with you, Mr. Denton. Give me back my eyes. <gasps> that voice. I tell you, Doctor, I keep hearing that voice. I <laughs> Your imagination is working overtime. Now, I'll get you a sedative. <laughs> Valerie! Oh. Oh, here you are. I thought you were in the kitchen getting some water for me. No, I didn't go. You didn't fool me asking for hot water. Fool you? I'm afraid I don't understand. You monster. You horrible monster. What are you talking about? Get away from that door. Let me go into my husband. Let me tell him. Just a moment, Valerie. Get your hands off me. Let me go. I should have known right from the beginning. You said I trusted you. I had faith in you. Valerie. Holding me. You made my skin crawl. Valerie, I demand an explanation. You'll get it all the explanation you want. I suspected something wrong when you sent me for hot water. That was just to get rid of me. Get me out of the way for six minutes. But I didn't leave this front room. Now, listen. I did listen. 
bedroom door didn't quite latch. I saw what you did. He couldn't see you because his poor eyes are bandaged. He's blind. But I saw your lips move, and I heard you say the words, Give me back my eyes. Valerie, will you please let me... If you don't get your hands off me. You unspeakable monster. Trying to drive Stephen mad. Playing on his superstitions, his fear of the dark, of the unknown. To turn him into a raving maniac. Valerie, be quiet. Quiet? Why, you filthy, desperate... What was that? Stephen! Stephen! He shot himself. He's dead. Oh, oh, Stephen. <laughs> Valerie. Go away. Go away. Valerie, it was all for the best. The best? Let me talk to you, Valerie. I can explain everything. You murdered him. I did it for you, darling, for us. Come into the living room and let me explain. You murdered him. Just as if you'd held that gun to his head and pulled the trigger yourself. Please, darling. Wait, leave me alone. Valerie, believe me, I did it to free you from a man who didn't deserve you. I did it so that you could know happiness with me. You're young, Valerie. You have years ahead of you. You're entitled to everything in life. Do you understand? <laughs> Come into the living room. There, that's it. We are going to be so happy together. Let me close the door and shut out the last memory of what has gone before. Now, our life is before us. Here. Sit down. My head, Paul. I, I have a terrible headache. I'll get you some aspirin. Where is it? In Stephen's laboratory. I'll get it. Let me help you. There. I think it's on the middle shelf. Turn the light on, Paul. The switch is on the right. I have it. Let me get the aspirin for you. Uh, I can find them more easily. I've been thinking, Valerie. After this is all over, we are going away on a trip. Perhaps somewhere off in the mountains or... You've got the wrong bottle, dear. That's not the aspirin. No. It's one of Stephen's chemicals. It's acid, Paul. Sulfuric acid. Oh, Valerie, put it back on the shelf. That stuff will burn. No, Paul. No, you cold-blooded murderer. You're going to know what Stephen knew before you forced him to take his life. You're going to know what it is to walk in darkness. Valerie. Forever. Down my eyes! <laughs> There, my friends, is a young lady who takes literally the old adage, an eye for an eye. Thank you, Boris Karloff and Cast, for keeping our growing reputation for horror quite intact. And now, ladies and gentlemen, if you'll follow me, please, I want you to visit the green room. The players are rehearsing our next performance. Come, come, come. about this man, Damery. Damery? Damery? What Damery? Lord Damery, of course. You seem to take his photograph in all the society weeklies. Well, naturally, the fellow's a household word in society. Mm, yes. He's a man of the world with a natural turn for diplomacy, and he's asked me for a 4.30 appointment, which I've granted. You mean that uh, Lord Damery's coming here, but it's 4.30 now. Look at the message. Oh, yes. Sherlock Holmes and the elementary Dr. Watson, played by Basil Rathbone and Nigel Bruce, respectively, 
will appear in our next tale of mystery. This is Peter Laurie closing the doors of the Mystery Playhouse. Good night. Sleep tight. This is the Armed Forces Radio Service. The last stragglers were leaving Mariner's waxworks. The uniformed attendants, glad that another day's work was over, were locking up. On the second floor of the old grey building, the manager, a stout, blonde man of smart appearance, was talking to one Raymond Hewson, who looked anything but smart. His clothes, although good once, were showing distinct signs of their owner's losing battle with the world. There's nothing new in your request. In fact, we diffuse it to many people. Young bloods have often made bets, but <laughs> we don't play ball. We've nothing to gain and something to lose by letting people spend the night in our murderer's den. A night in the murderer's den. That's what Raymond Hewson, the man in the shabby clothes, was after. Why? You'll find out. The waxworks. I must earnestly beseech you not to listen to this beyond midnight alone. Biotex, the new soak and pre-wash powder presents Beyond Midnight by Michael McCabe. I had a letter recently from Mrs. V.P., head of 7th Street, Parkmore, to Huntersburg, and she said, I cannot fully describe my utter delight on returning to the washing to find the stubborn stains of two months standing completely removed. I am so glad I discovered your product, Biotex. And now Mrs. J. Longman of Cambridge, West East London, wrote to say, Just a word of thanks for your new soak and wash powder, Biotex. I find it almost too good to be true. I've just finished my first packet, and I washed all my baby's woolens with it, and they really do stay white. And what is more, they keep their shape so well, too. Once again, thanks for a wonderful product. I'm just hoping you won't wait too long before putting a large economy-sized packet on the market. Well, thank you, Mrs. Head of Parkmore and uh, Mrs. Longman, for your endorsements. 
I, too, can endorse Biotex by making certain claims to you ladies, the most important of which is that with Biotex, the stubbornest, the very stubbornest stains just vanish merely by soaking. certainly have nothing to gain. If I allowed it and let some young idiot lose his senses, what would be my position? Hmm? But of course, your being a journalist somehow, uh, well, that alters the case. Well, I suppose you mean that journalists have no senses to lose. <laughs> no, 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 no. But one imagines them to be sensible, responsible people. Besides, here we have something to gain. Publicity and advertisement. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and there I thought uh, we might come to terms. Oh, I know what's coming. You want to be paid twice, do you? It used to be said years ago that Madame Tussauds would give a man a hundred pounds for sleeping alone in the Chamber of Horrors. And I hope you don't think we've made any such offer. Now, well, what's your paper? Uh, well, I'm freelancing at the moment, uh, working on space for two or three papers. But, um, well, I don't think I'll have any trouble in getting this story published. <laughs> Do you? Morning Echo would use it like a shot. A night with mariners murderers. No live paper could turn it down. Mm. Well, how do you propose to treat it? Well, I'll make it gruesome, of course. But uh, with just a saving touch of humour. I see. All right, Mr. Houston. Get your story published in the Echo. And there's a five-pound note waiting for you here when you care to come and call for it. I'd, uh, I'd like to be sure about you, though. And I'd like you to be sure about yourself. Huh? I must confess that I wouldn't spend a night in murderers' den... I've seen those figures dressed and undressed. I know all about their process of manufacture. I can walk about in company downstairs as if I were walking among so many skittles. But I'd hate to sleep alone down there amongst them. Why? I don't know. There isn't any reason. I mean, I don't believe in ghosts. Even if I did, I'd expect them to haunt the scenes of their crimes or, or the place where their bodies were laid, not a cellar which just happens to contain their waxwork effigies. It's just that I couldn't sit alone among them all night. <laughs> they, uh, they seem to stare so. Well, I mean, after all, they do represent the lowest and most appalling forms of humanity. Now, I wouldn't admit this publicly, of course, but the people who come to see our murderers aren't generally charged with the highest motives themselves. No, the whole atmosphere of the place is unpleasant. And if you're susceptible to atmosphere, I warn you, you're in for a very uncomfortable night. Uh, <clears throat> well, sir, uh, I'm imaginative, I think. I am probably susceptible to atmosphere, as you put it. But it's a good idea, and I have a wife and family to support. Been a bit uh, unlucky lately in the job stakes, you know. And, uh, well, we're living on my savings, which aren't great. But after all, they are only waxworks, aren't they? You're not superstitious? No, I don't think so. But you just said that you have an imagination. As a journalist, you'd need a reasonably strong one, after all. The editors I've worked for have often complained I haven't any. <laughs> all right. I think the last of the people have gone. Now, wait a minute. I'll give orders that the figures happen to be draped. I'll let the night people know you're going to be there, too. One condition I'm afraid I must impose on you. I must ask you not to smoke. We had a fire scare down in the murderer's den this evening. I don't know who gave the alarm, but whoever it was, it was a false one. Fortunately, there weren't very many people down there at the time, or there might have been a panic. All right. A night with mariners murderers you want, a night with mariners murderers you shall have. In the passage at the bottom of the stairs were a few preliminary horrors. A rack taken from a medieval castle, relics of the Inquisition, branding irons, thumbscrews, 
Beyond was the passage into the murderer's den. The waxworks. Fertel, the murderer of Weir, stood as if frozen in his diabolical act. Within five yards of him sat Mrs. Thompson. There was Lefroy, who killed Fogain so that he might ape the gentleman. And Charles Peace, sneering across a gangway at Norman Thorne. Brown and Kennedy, the two most recent additions, stood between Mrs. Dyer and Patrick Mahon. That's Crippen. I expect you recognize him. Um, insignificant little beast. Looks as if he couldn't turn on a worm. Oh, there's Armstrong. Looks like a decent, harmless country gentleman, doesn't he? And of course, there. Who's this? Oh, yes, I was coming to him. He's our star turn. He's the only one of the bunch who hasn't been hanged. The figure Hewson had indicated was that of a small, slight man, not more than five feet in height. It wore little waxed moustaches, large spectacles, and a caped coat. There was something so exaggeratedly French in his appearance that it reminded Hewson of a stage caricature. Who... who is he? That is Dr. Bourdet. Oh. Oh, don't think I've... uh... Well, somehow the name's familiar, but, uh... I forget. Well, you'd remember better if you were a Frenchman. For some long while, that man was the terror of Paris. He carried on his work of healing by day and of throat cutting by night when the fit was on him. He killed for the sheer devilish pleasure it gave him to kill. And always the same way, with a razor. After his last crime, he left a clue behind him which set the police on his track. Now, one clue led to another, and before long, they knew they were on the track of the Parisian equivalent of Jack the Ripper. They had enough evidence to send him to the madhouse or the guillotine on a dozen capital charges. And, uh, they, they, they caught him then? <laughs> no, no, no. Our friend was too clever for them. Oh. Even then, when he realized the net was closing, he just vanished. Disappeared off the face of the earth. Ever since the police of every civilized country have been searching for him. Oh, where can you possibly go on to? I mean, with such a hunt on for him. Oh, there's no doubt about that. Did himself in, obvious. But in such a way that prevented his body coming to light. Now, one or two crimes of a smaller, though similar nature have taken place since he disappeared, but he's believed to be dead. The experts think the crimes are since either, you know, the actions of imitators. <laughs> Look at his eyes. Yes, that little figure's a masterpiece. You find the eyes bite into you, don't you? Hmm? Uh, sort of, yes. Well, that's excellent realism, then. What do you mean? Mesmerism. Pardon? Bourdet practiced mesmerism. He was supposed to mesmerize his victims before uh, <clears throat> dispatching them. Oh. Indeed. Had he not done so, it's difficult to believe how so small a man could have done his ghastly work. Uh, he's very small, isn't he? Doesn't look very strong or anything. Well, there were never any signs of a struggle. There's an armchair here for you, Mr. Houston. It's the best we can do for you, I'm afraid. I hope you'll be able to get some sleep. But Mr. Houston. Mr. Houston? <laughs> uh, you know, I thought... <laughs> yes? Uh, well, I, I thought... Um, <laughs> just then... Um, well, I, I thought I saw... 
the, the doctor, Baudet. Uh, well, silly, but... Well, I, I thought I saw him move. Keep your home sweet with country fresh atmosphere in every room. Keep Airwick handy. Airwick is the air freshener that actually knocks odors right out of the air. It doesn't just mask them with heavy scent. Airwick is the modern air freshener in economical bottle or a smart aerosol. Get Airwick. It makes breathing a little nicer. Soak, soak, that's all you have to do. Soak, soak, just for an hour or two, you'll find Fix the best odors new when you use new Biotex. With amazing new Biotex, the stubbornest stains will vanish. Yes, vanish clean away. Just by soaking your laundry overnight in cold water, or for an hour or two in warm water, or by pre-washing it quickly in your washing machine. Get amazing new Biotex today. Imagination. <laughs> Silly, but... Well, I could have sworn... Just in... Just for a second. Uh, you'll have more than one optical illusion before the night's out, I'm afraid. Oh. Well, you won't be locked in. You can come upstairs when you've had enough of it. Uh, there are watchmen on the premises, so you'll find company. But don't be alarmed if you hear them moving about. I'm sorry I can't give you any more light, but uh, all the lights are on. For obvious reasons, we keep the place as gloomy as possible. Uh, yes. And now I think you'd better return with me to the office for a tot of whiskey before your night's vigil, hmm? Yes, well, for a start, I, uh, I don't think we'll have my armchair-facing friend Baudet. Yeah, I think I like him a lot less than the others. <coughs> Desire to turn round. Come on. 
My nerves have started already. If I turn and look at that dressed-up dummy, it'll be an admission of funk. It's because you're afraid that you won't turn and look at him. Rubbish. I'm not afraid at all. Yes, you are. Rot. Complete and utter rot. Afraid? A lot of waxworks. Not of a lot of waxworks. Just one. Dr. Bourdet. <laughs> French fool. Not so healthy now, is he? Ha! Look at his eyes. Don't want to see his eyes. All the same, he had to eventually have a quick look round at Dr. Bourdet. Only a waxwork like the rest of them. They're all only waxworks. All the same, he took another quick look behind him. Now, it did not worry Hewson too much because it was, after all, only his imagination. But there seemed to be a subtle change in the grouping of the figures around Dr. Bourdet. Or was it Dr. Bourdet himself? Huh. <sighs> Looking to the front of him, he looked at Crippen. Again, he had the slight feeling that something, somewhere, was a bit different. Crippen seemed, for instance, to have turned one degree to the left. I must have moved my chair a bit. Not Crippen. It was me who moved. <laughs> and just then, the waxwork of Grey moved a hand. At least Hewson thought the hand moved... Just for his own peace of mind, Raymond Hewson gave the waxen figure a little poke. Wax. No more, no less. Lifeless, life-like wax. <clears throat> they tell me, the editors... I've no imagination. Well, better make some notes. It wasn't you. <laughs> it wasn't any of you. And then he looked back, and Crippen seemed to have shifted his position slightly. Hmm. Can't trust that little beggar. Can't trust any of them. Once you take your eyes off them, they move. Not good enough, this isn't. <laughs> I, I reckon I'm going. Not going to spend enough with a lot of waxworks who move when you aren't looking at them. When we move, I'll, I'll smash you to pieces. Smash you! <clears throat> Experienced enough already to write my story. 
Ten stories for that matter. Yeah. Morning echo. Wouldn't know how long I'd stayed if I, if I cleared out now. As long as the story's good. Yes. That watchman up there. <laughs> he pulled my leg all right. And perhaps the manager wouldn't give me the five or two. Find out all right how long I was here from the watchman. <laughs> Rose will laugh about this. I tell her. Mm. You asleep, Rose girl? Or awake, thinking of me? <laughs> Can't have Rose laughing at me. Kids will pull my leg, too. Yeah. I think worse than... Hmm? Worse than... Having... Someone's breathing. Someone was breathing. Well, it wasn't me. They knew I was listening then. They, and then they stopped. Yeah, yes, they did. But this is too much. Bad enough when they move, when I'm not looking. But I'm not having the beggars breathing, too. No, this won't do. I am Raymond Hewson, unsuccessful journalist, but a living and breathing man. And these figures grouped around me are only dummies. Dummies! Yeah. What does it matter if they're lifelike? <laughs> Wax and sawdust for the entertainment of a morbid sightseers and orange-sucking tourists. Ha! Then the gaze of Dr. Burdett urged, challenged, and finally compelled him to turn. Huh? Hewson stared into those dreadful hypnotic eyes. His own eyes were dilated and his mouth at first set into a grin of terror lifted at the corners into a snarl. You moved, Blasty. Yes, you did. I saw you. I saw you! Good evening. Dr. Baudet's movements were quite leisurely. He stepped off his pedestal with the mincing movements of a lady alighting from a bus. I need hardly tell you that not until I overheard the conversation between yourself and the worthy manager of this establishment did I suspect that I should have the pleasure of a companion here for the night. You cannot move or speak without my bidding, but you can hear perfectly well. Something tells me that uh, you are... Uh, Shall I say, nervous? Uh, my dear sir, uh, no illusions. I am not one of these contemptible little effigies suddenly come to life. I am Dr. Bourdet himself. <clears throat> Pardon me, but... Uh, uh, Steve, uh, uh, let me explain. Circumstances with which I did not fatigue you have made it desirable that I should live in England. I was close to the building this evening when I saw a policeman regarding me thought too curiously. I guessed that he intended to follow me and perhaps ask embarrassing questions. So I mingled with the crowd and came in here. Inspiration showed me a certain means of escape. 
I raised a cry of fire. And when all the fools had rushed to the stairs, I stripped my effigy of the caped coat, which you may all be wearing, donned it, hid my effigy behind the platform at the back there, and took its place on the pedestal. <laughs> I own I have spent a most fatiguing evening. The world is divided into collectors and non-collectors. The collectors collect anything according to their own individual tastes. I collect thrones. And the doctor regarded Hewson's throat with interest mingled with disfavor. My activities of late have been curtailed. I'm glad, though, of the pleasant opportunity of gratifying my somewhat unusual whim. I should never have selected you from choice, of course. No, I like men with thick necks. Thick red necks. This is a little French razor. The blade, you will observe, is very narrow. It does not cut very deep, but deep enough. In just one little moment, you shall see for yourself. I shall ask you the little civil question of all polite barbers. Does the razor suit you, sir? You will have the goodness to raise your chin a little. Thank you. And a little more, just a little more. Ah, thank you. Merci, monsieur. Ah, merci. Merci. Over one end of the chamber was a thick skylight of frosted glass, which, by day, let in a few sickly and filtered rays from the floor above. After sunrise, these began to mingle with the subdued light from the electric bulbs, and this mingled illumination added a certain ghastliness to a scene which needed no additional touch of horror. The waxwork figures stood apathetically in their places, waiting to be admired by the crowds who would presently wander fearfully among them. In their midst, in the centre gangway, Hewson sat still, leaning far back in his armchair. His chin was up-tilted, as if he were expecting to receive attention from a barber, and although there was not a scratch upon his throat, nor indeed anywhere upon his whole body, he was cold and quite dead. His previous employers were wrong in having him credited with no imagination. Dr. Baudet, on his pedestal, watched the dead man unemotionally. He did not move, nor was he capable of motion. But then, after all, he was only a waxwork. criminal, and I didn't mean it. You know I didn't. Oh, stop whining, Gerald. Take your medicine like a man. What? All right, Harvey. I'll stop. You're responsible for the whole thing. You know you are. And since they can only hang me once, even for two murders... Midnight. 
The witching hour when the night is darkest, our fears the strongest, and our strength at its lowest ebb. Midnight, when the graves gape open and death strikes. How? You'll learn the answer in just a minute in Death's Goblets. <laughs> Mystery and Terror by Radio's Masters of the Macabre. Our story by Sigmund Miller is Death's Goblet. It all began at one of Arthur Cunningham's parties. He always gave a party when he came back from one of his trips abroad. I went there with Gerald, my partner, and his wife, Susan. Beautiful Susan. Did I care for her? <laughs> People used to say so. But she was too self-centered a woman for me. I like to look at her just as I like to look at anything that's uh, lovely. That was all. As for Gerald, well, he was rich, which was the only reason he was my partner. But suppose I start at the beginning. At the moment we got to the party and Arthur came over. Well, hello, Harvey. Glad you came. Wonderful to see you back, Arthur. You know Gerald and his lovely wife, Susan? Of course. Hello, lovely wife, Gerald. It's nice to see you again, Arthur. Good trip, Arthur. Marvelous. And you're just in time for a drink. Hey, let's get away from this mob. Come into the study. Oh, I've just opened my last bottle of Chateau Albert. Oh, nice. Here we are. Oh, well, someone get the glasses out of the cabinet, will you? Mob <laughs> parties make me very nervous. You know, I'm much yeah. Here we are. Hi. What an odd goblet this one is. Oh, uh... Put that one back, Susan. Why, what's wrong, Arthur? Uh, use any of the others, but not that one. Oh, I'll be careful of it, if that's what you're worried about. Oh, it's not that. I just don't want you to drink from it. What's all the mystery about, Arthur? Well, you'd all think I was mad if I told you. Uh, take a look at it. It's a very strange-looking glass. Yes, looks uh, Venetian, possibly from Murano. It is. This red spot here on the side. Yes, it's supposed to be a drop of blood. Oh, that's very odd. How do you know that? Well, Gerald, this goblet has a legend, a terrible legend. And, of course, none of you will believe it, but the story is that anyone who drinks from this goblet will kill someone. Oh, that's wonderful. And you believe it? Why, yes, Gerald. You see, I've had proof. Good heavens. I, well, I once drank from this goblet. What? Arthur, you're joking. You mean that Yes, you... Susan, it was justifiable homicide, but after I drank from it, I did kill someone. He was a thief and he attacked me, but still I killed him. Well, you never told us about that. Well, it's not anything that I care to remember particularly. Oh, how terrible for you, Arthur. Where did you get the goblet? From a murderer. A man who killed his wife. They were auctioning off his estate. Hmm. Extraordinary. May I look at the glass, Arthur? Yes, if you like. Everyone stared at the goblet in silence as I held it to the light. It had a delicate brown tint, reminding me of old blood, except that it sparkled and glittered. The spot of red did look like a drop of blood about to roll down the side. It seemed ridiculous that this inanimate object could make men commit murder, and yet there was something about it that, that fascinated me, and suddenly I wanted to drink out of it. 
You seem very interested in my goblet, Harvey. Yes, will you pour some wine in it for me? What? No, Harvey. This happens to be one superstition I believe. Everyone who has ever put his lips to this goblet has killed. I don't know why it's so, but it is. Oh, it's silly, of course, but why tempt fate? Oh, nonsense, Gerald, nonsense. I'm going to drink out of it. You'll have to pour the wine yourself, Harvey. All right, I will. Well, here's, um, health and, uh, long life. No, Harvey, I won't let you... Oh, well, Susan... You shouldn't have done that. You've spilled some of Arthur's best burgundy and ruined a good tablecloth. It doesn't matter. I'm glad you did it, Susan. I won't let you or anyone else drink from that glass. It's strange to get so distressed about a ridiculous legend. I don't think murder is ridiculous. You know, I'd like to get rid of it. I was thinking of destroying it. Well, why don't you just fling it against the fireplace? No, I can't. Uh I've tried several times, but somehow I couldn't. Um, Arthur. Yes? How about uh, giving it to me? I'd rather not. Oh, come on. You want to get rid of it, and I have a fine glass collection. I'd I'd like to add to it. I'll keep it locked up. You'll be sorry, but if you want it that badly, Harvey, it's yours. Arthur, please don't give it to him. Susan, what's the matter with you? You watch over Harvey as if... Well, as if... As if what, Gerald? Oh, the whole business is absurd. Of course it is. Yes, and if I should drink out of it and commit a murder, that would be the most absurd thing of all. (laughs) I kept the goblet on the mantelpiece in my library where the lamplight made it glitter. I discovered that the red drop was not paint. It was ingrained in the glass. Oh, very cleverly. One night... Both Susan and Gerald were at my home. As we chatted, I got up, went to the mantelpiece, and idly toyed with the goblet. That goblet? It's the one Arthur gave... Yes, yes, you remember. He gave it to me. Why don't you smash it, Harvey? Get rid of it. Ooh, it gives us all the creeps. Mm. Well, Gerald, you aren't really afraid of a piece of glass, are you? You don't believe Arthur's story at all, do you, Harvey? On the contrary, Susan, I do believe it. But, uh, not the way you think. What do you mean? Well, I mean to say murder is not in the goblet. It's in me, in you, even in in Gerald. What a silly thing to say, Harvey. Oh, yes. You don't need a magic goblet to commit a murder. All you have to do is let yourself go. Let go of the civilized controls that tie you up. Why, Gerald, if you had cause... You could murder me or even your lovely wife. Oh, I couldn't kill a fly. Oh, but you could if the fly gave you enough trouble. Now, supposing, uh, just as an example, supposing that you discovered that Susan was really in love with me and only married you for your money. Harvey. Wouldn't that make you want to murder her, Joe? Oh, you're crazy. That's not very funny, Harvey. Even you, Susan. What? Even though you have a lovely face and exquisite hands, even you could commit murder. Why, there must have been times when you hated Gerald, or only for a moment, of course. But in that moment, in that moment, if you were not so civilized... Stop it, Harvey. Why, you could even put your lovely hands around my throat. Oh, stop it, Harvey. (laughs) You're not that important to her. And then just why are we on this gruesome subject? That's Harvey's idea of humor. Susan looked at me, a touch of red, at the point where the cheekbones make the skin taut. She seemed angry, but she wasn't really. Oh, yes, she loved me. I could see it in her face. She looked at me for a moment and then dropped her eyes. 
May I look at the goblet, Harvey? No, I'm afraid not, Susan. You might accidentally drop it. It might be a good idea. Well, I have an even better one, Gerald. And that's to go home before we get really serious about this murder business. I sat there staring at the goblet after they left. It it fascinated me, glittering in the lamplight. And as I looked at it, it almost seemed as if the red spot of blood was uh, moving, rolling down its side. Why, why shouldn't I drink from it? Why? And before I knew it, I'd taken it down and put it on the table. I got a bottle of burgundy, opened it, and I poured slowly, filling the goblet just up to the red spot. And then I drank from it. Uh, seemed to me that the wine had a, a different taste, although I had drunk this wine often and knew its taste well. It was delicious. Uh, I had another. It was heady. And it made me a little dizzy, although I felt fine and, and, and free. Yes, light and dizzy. But, but after a while, when the dizziness wouldn't go away, I decided to go for a drive, even though it was close to midnight. I drove fast. The speed and power of the car gave me a feeling of great exhilaration. I took the turns at full speed, enjoying the danger of the sharp curves. Then I came to a long, level stretch of road. I pressed down hard on the gas. The needle of the speedometer slowly moved upward. Sixty, seventy, eighty, eighty-five. The road, like a black ribbon, rolled up in front of me. And then I suddenly saw him, but it was too late. I struck him with my right fender. He never made a sound. The car swerved a little from the impact. My heart in my throat. I stopped. Then I, I backed up. Backed up to where the body was lying sprawled grotesquely on the edge of the road. One look was enough. He was dead. But no one had seen the accident. I stepped on the gas and drove off. Death's goblet and the man who drank from it. A corpse lying limp by the side of a lonely road. And a car speeding away as the clock strikes twelve for... Murder at Harvey challenged the curse of the goblet and found it true. He had just killed a man after drinking from it. Let's listen to him as he continues the story of Death's Goblet. I knew now that the story of the goblet wasn't a myth, and I also knew what I was going to do about it. The next night, 
I got Gerald to come to my house to do some work. I can't make head or tail out of your cost estimates, Harvey. Oh, now, really, Gerald is very simple. Just concentrate. Oh, why can't you take care of it like a good fellow? I'm awfully tired. Well, all right. Let's stop for a couple of minutes. Have a drink. Oh, what are you doing, Harvey? The goblet. Why, you don't really believe that story of Arthur's, do you? Well, You're much too intelligent for that. Mm-hmm. Well, you only pretended in front of Susan, didn't you? Well, I... <laughs> oh, yes. Had to pretend, you know, women. Well, of course. And even if you did believe it, I have a feeling that... Basically, you're pretty reckless, aren't you? Well, I used to be pretty wild when I was a young fella. <laughs> On a motorcycle once. And... Yes, yes, I know, yes. Well, let's drink up. Find me a victim, will you, Gerald? Huh? Well, you know, according to the legend, I've got to murder someone. Uh, Maybe even you. (laughs) Harvey the murderer. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh. Mm, Very nice wine. How about another? Right. Well, here's to uh, your lovely wife. And um, how about switching glasses? Well, you might as well get a kick out of it, too. Um, well, uh, okay, here goes. I watched the fool swagger as he drank down the wine. In an hour, when he was alone, he'd be shivering with fright at what he'd done. <sighs> well, I did it. You certainly did. And by the way, Gerald. Yes? I checked Arthur's story about this goblet. Yeah? And it seems that he's right. Everyone who ever put his lips to this goblet... Has committed a murder. You mean... Well, of course, it's all coincidence, but... uh, Then again, who knows? All the next week, I kept reminding Gerald about his drinking from the goblet. I wasn't really trying to get him to kill, but it was amusing to see him get upset and uneasy. And I noticed he was getting a little bolder, particularly with Susan, and had developed a temper. And one night, just as I was about to retire... Hello, is that you, Harvey? Yes, Susan, how are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just a little worried about Gerald. He oh. usually gets home at about six, and it's eleven o'clock now. Do you know where he might be? Why, he's having dinner with his sister. His sister? Yes, a tall, dark girl. She was in the office today, and... The... Harvey, Gerald has no sisters. Oh, he hasn't? Oh, uh, I, um, uh, I guess I got him mixed up with someone else. Yes, yes, it, it was Les Gordon who was meeting his sister. Yes, Gerald had some business to take care of over in Milford. You're and not that... very good at covering up, Harvey. I'm coming right over. Please wait up for me. <laughs> good. Things were beginning to happen. It was becoming very interesting. Now we'd see. Harvey, I want you to tell me everything. I must know. Who is this girl? Take it easy, Susan. Come, sit down, sit down. Never mind that. What about Gerald? I don't know anything about Gerald's private life. And besides, you're not the one to talk. What on earth do you mean? You know perfectly well what I mean. You don't really care for Gerald. Actually, you're in love with me. Harvey. Well, you are, aren't you? Maybe. Sometimes I think I am. (laughs) Oh, but you're too cold-blooded. 
I'd never be sure I could trust you. As a matter of fact, you'd like to get rid of Gerald. Why do you say that? Well, I'm just putting your thoughts into words. You never really loved him, did you? Oh, but Harvey... And he's finally become unbearable, hasn't he? Oh, Harvey, if you only knew... Do you know that the last time Gerald was here, he drank out of that goblet of Arthur's? It's possible that he wants to get rid of you, too. Stop it! Stop it, you hear? Well, I'm just telling you what I think you ought to know. Oh, you see... I left word at home that Gerald was to meet me here. And if he does come, well, we'll see. We sat and waited, not talking much. Susan's face was pale and agitated. It was most exciting. Susan, with all her charm and embellishments, was really a fierce animal underneath. I could almost hear her rage seething. Are you expecting anyone? Just Gerald. Well, let him in. Oh, hello, Harvey. Susan, what's up? Why did you leave word to meet you here? It's almost midnight. Where have you been all the evening? At Milford. With whom? What's going on, anyway? What are you so excited about, Susan? What were you doing in Milford? Why, I went there on business. Oh, really? You've been behaving very strangely lately, Gerald. If you don't love me, why don't you say so like a man? What? This is all your fault, Harvey. You've been filling her head with poison. I? I had nothing to do with this. I told her that you went to Milford. All he did was to make me see clearly something I've felt for a long while. And I think this is the time to do something about it. Sue, are you out of your mind? Put that gun down. You remember it, don't you? You gave it to me. Said it might be useful in an emergency. Harvey, take that gun away from her. She's liable to shoot. She won't shoot. She's only trying to frighten you. Am I? Let's see. Oh, my shoulder... Give me that. No. Give me that. Harvey. She. She's dead. Yes, Gerald. And you killed her. But. But it was an accident. She shot at me. And I was only trying to get the gun away from her. You know that's what happened. I only know that you drank from that goblet and that you killed her. What? But. Oh, you. You dirty, treacherous. You planned all this so that you could get rid of me. So that you could have Susan. You could have the firm for yourself. You'll have to do better than that to beat the gallows, Gerald. The gallows? Please, Harvey. We've been friends for a long time. You can't let me down. You wouldn't have pressed the trigger if you hadn't had murder in your heart, Gerald. You shot her because you wanted to. That's what I saw. I believe in telling the truth. Harvey, I'll turn over the business to you. I'll do anything, anything, if you'll just... I don't accept bribes, Gerald. All right. But I'll fool you. I'll call the police myself. Well, there's the phone. I'll prove my case in court. They won't convict me. Operator. Operator. Give me the police. Hello? Police department? This is Gerald Hamilton. I I just accidentally shot my wife. And my friend's home. Yes, she's dead. The address is 411 Grove Street. That's right. I killed her. Accidentally. Yes, I'll be waiting here. Cigarette, Gerald? Treating me like a condemned man, huh? I'm not going to die. All I have to do is tell the truth about everything, including you. Oh, but you forget, Gerald, there must be fingerprints, your fingerprints on that gun. That won't look very accidental, will it? I... But... But Harvey... You did it, Gerald. I saw you. If you don't back me up, they'll hang me like a common criminal... 
Please, Harvey. Don't let them do that to me, please. Oh, stop whining, Gerald. What? All right, Harvey. I'll stop. You're responsible for this whole thing. You know you are. And since they can only hang me once... He raised the gun, but I'd been expecting it. I grabbed his hand, pushed it against his chest. My finger pressed on his and on the trigger. And suddenly, he went limp. You won't get away. My alibi was perfect. All I had to do was wait for the police that he himself had called. Minutes ticked slowly away, and then... Hello, Harvey. Arthur. Glad I found you in. Say, you look as if you'd been in a fight. Arthur, you'd, uh, you'd better not come in. Why? What's the matter? No, no, you'd better not come in. Oh, but why? Well, uh, uh, Gerald and uh, Susan, they, they had a quarrel, and he killed her. What? And then he shot himself. What are you talking about, Harvey? Well, all right, come in. Look for yourself. Good. Good Lord. Tried to kill me, too. But but why? It doesn't sound like him or like either of them. Well, I don't know why. Fit of insanity? Or maybe it was the, the goblet. Your goblet. He drank out of it, you know. The goblet? Why, that's ridiculous. As he spoke... He picked up the gun. It made me furious. All those fine fingerprints of Gerald's were now erased. Put that gun down, Arthur. There are fingerprints on it. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. I tried to get hold of myself. The stupid fool, he was going to ruin everything. But I had to keep calm. What, uh... What were you saying about the goblet? Why, it has no curse or magic. I just made that story up. You... You... You made it... You mean... Of course, I bought the goblet in an antique shop. As a matter of fact, I have a whole set of them. The pulses hammered away in my head. A vast, uncontrollable anger seized me. Was it because of those precious fingerprints that he'd wiped out? Or because I had believed in the goblet myself? I don't know. I only know that I had to fight to keep from grabbing him by the throat. You know... I don't think you're telling me everything you know about this horrible business, Harvey. In fact... A red-hot wave came over me. I don't remember exactly what happened. Let me go! Get your hands off me! Arthur's body is lying there, too, now. Next to Susan's and Gerald's. But the police will be here any minute, so I have to hurry. First, the goblet. There. That's done. That... No. Some of the broken fragments still glitter in the lamplight. I've got to crush them. Grind them to powder under my heel. But... But there are always other pieces that I can't find. They're... They're hiding from me. They're afraid of me. But I'll find every piece. I'll find them. I'll find them. I'll find them. Three bodies lying huddled on the floor, and a madman crushing the fragments of the broken goblet to powder as the police car drives up and the clock strikes twelve for murder. 
of a friend, and the clocks strike twelve for murder at midnight. The part of Harvey was played by Eric Dressler. With music by Charles Paul, Murder at Midnight was directed by Anton M. Leder. <laughs> 